Well done. Thank you for that. Uh, you notice we did communion before the sermon, and I want to address that. I got a, a text message from Rick earlier in the week. He says, hey, I, I'd like to do the communion, uh, or the homily, we call it, before the message. That way, if I need to have a, a, any correction from you from the pulpit, you can. I think he was being polite, and I said, that sounds great. Uh, I'll address that first. Uh, no, uh, correct, no corrections on my account, brother. That was, I thought that was spot on. Uh, the second part is uh, he sent me a text in reply. I said, well, how long are you thinking? He said, about 10 minutes. I said, well, uh, keep it under five, if you would. Here's why I said that. I got an email one time that was a very long-winded email. And at the end of the email, he said, sorry, I would have kept it shorter, but I didn't have the time. Think about that. It, it takes a lot of thought to take a really long passage or a long idea and narrow it down to the main points and say what you're going to say. So when we have uh, men come up here and do homilies, I think it's one of the most difficult things to do because you have to say a lot in a little bit of time. Um, so thank you for that, uh, that homily. I thought that was perfect and it was encouraging. The worship was spot on. Uh, I hope I can uh, keep up with the, so far what we've done today. It's all been good. Uh, last week, Steve preached on Matthew chapter 5. Uh, blessed are those who mourn. And um, he mentioned something in that message that I thought was a nugget. Uh, when I say a nugget, I'll take things from a message, a sermon, and I'll, I'll, I'll glean from it, and then I'll go, that, that's something that's going to stick with me for a while. And um, I'll get to that in a minute, but you know, we've talked about the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, and we see that it's kind of a, a, a progression. Um, you can't really hit the last part of the Sermon on the Mount without recognizing first part, blessed are those the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we've gone through, blessed are the poor in spirit, for those is the kingdom of heaven, and then blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And so Steve dealt with this concept of mourning, realizing and recognizing their sin, and realizing that we need God to step in and make it right. Um, the, the passage that I enjoyed the most that Steve used last week was 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. Um, and that is, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And I thought that was a very important point on blessed are those who mourn, is that there is a difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. And I felt that point was made very strongly last week, and I appreciated that. And I want to continue on the sermon series of the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to continue until we're done, and who knows how long it's going to take, and so far, I believe this is our third, fourth week. That's right, fourth week. You're correct. So we did kind of an overview, and then I did Blessed Are the Poor in Spirit, and then Steve last week did Blessed Are Those Who Mourn, and this week I figured we'd get through two or three verses, uh, and I don't think that's going to happen. However, we are going to look at the passage in uh, Matthew 5, 5, uh, and keeping in mind the Beatitudes, some say there are eight Beatitudes, others say there are nine. I think the eighth and ninth Beatitude go together. Uh, I think they're saying basically the same thing, but blessed are the poor in spirit, the mourners, the meek, the hungry and thirsty, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and the persecuted. And hopefully, as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, we look at the Beatitudes, it's something that we as Christians, we as followers of God, can strive to become like Jesus' 
saying those who are blessed are going to follow these types of teachings. So Matthew 5, 5 says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now if you are a young man, um, or a young woman one day looking for a young man, um, I want to share with you my experience on this passage. I was in my early 20s, and I read this uh, probably for the first time seriously, and I was reading through the Gospels for the first time in my life. And I read this passage, um, and I remember reading and thinking, the last thing I wanted to be was meek. Even though it says that I will inherit the earth, the very last thing that I want to be as a young man is meek. And the reason I felt that way is I was 22, striving to be a man, I wanted to be hard, I wanted to be salty, I wanted to be tough, and I look at this passage, and I didn't want to be what I considered meek, which was to be a Passover, a, pa- a pushover uh, with no spine. That, that, was, that was my mindset when I read this for the first time, and I remember reading 15 years ago Christian books that have been published on the fact that churches as a whole are losing men. Men are leaving the church in droves. And a, and a higher percentage of churches are filled with women. And I can remember thinking, well, I don't blame them. Because if meek is something that we are to uh, uh, strive for, and we're supposed to have as an attribute, I'm looking at this going, I don't want that. So as I began to study this, and I, and I looked at the studies of men that were leaving the church, and I realized from the books that I was reading, the, the synopsis of all the books was that the church has become effeminate. And it's gearing, Steve's shaking his head yes here. I'm glad to hear that. You're not shaking your head no. The church has been geared towards effeminacy because our culture has geared manhood towards effeminacy. And the church has slowly adopted that mindset that in order to be a man, you need to be more effeminate like the world does if you're in the church. And we see that where effeminate men are being put on a pedestal where masculine men are being called toxic masculinity. And I can remember I was bike riding with my son in St. George, and there was this really downhill, steep section, and I said, go for it. And it was icy. It was in St. George in February. It was icy. He goes down, goes over his bars. I video it. I pause it. I screenshot it as he's over his bars, and he's about to land on this slick rock, and he gets up, and I, you can put it on Strava where you post a picture, and you can name your ride. And I named my ride Toxic Masculinity with a picture of my son going over his bars. For something, for me, I was like, this is a, this is a positive, powerful thing, but over the last 15 or 20 years, the church has really geared itself towards effeminacy. And effeminacy is a great thing if you're a woman. One of the most powerful attributes my wife has that I love and respect and I just adore is the times when she's the most effeminate or my daughter the same thing. But that's not the case when it comes to men. So when I looked at this passage, I'm going, so in our culture, meek equals weak. And if that's what this means, I'm going to be honest with you, that goes against my natural desires. That's not what I want. 
And so I had to look at this and go, okay, this has got to mean something different. But before I go to what I think it means, uh, have you, anybody here read comics? Or in it, read comics in the past? Thank you. We got one 12, 14-year-old shaking his, thank you, Dan. So my favorite's Calvin and Hobbes. That's, that's my favorite. Calvin and Hobbes, I know that's my wife's favorite, Grant's favorite. Um, but Garfield, some people Garfield, Doonesbury, you're Doonesbury. What's the guy that eats all the sandwiches, the big sandwiches? Dag Dagwood? Dagwood. That Dagwood's another one. Uh, another one I had in here that I thought was good was uh, Jughead. Jughead was always kind of a funny one for me. I'm going to date some of you. Do you remember the comic Casper Milk Toast? No? Steve, you don't remember Casper Milk Toast? Okay, Casper, I'm not saying you're this old, but Casper Milk Toast... Casper Milk Toast was a comic strip written by H.T. Webster in 1924. That's when it started. And the series was started as The Timid Soul. That was the, uh, the name of the comic strip about a man named Casper Milk Toast. And the scene came out because Milk Toast, it's spelled M-I-L-Q-U-E-T-O-A-S-T. But it's after the idea that when somebody has a queasy or a weak stomach, they would, they would eat milk toast. They would eat toast dipped in milk because it was easy on the stomach. So this is what was written about that. Uh, Webster described Casper Milk Toast as, quote, the man who speaks softly and gets hit with the big stick. The character's name is derived from a bland and fairly inoffensive food, milk toast, which light and easy, which light and easy to digest is an appropriate food for someone with a weak or nervous stomach. Because of the popularity of Webster's character, the term milk toast came into general usage in American English to mean weak and ineffectual. When the term is used to describe a person, it typically indicates someone of an unusually meek, meek, bland, soft, or submissive nature who is easily overlooked, written off, and who may also appear overly sensitive, timid, indecisive, and cowardly. In fact, milk toast appears in most American English dictionaries, but is not in many other English dictionaries. So this word milk toast, which is defined as meek, is representing someone who is timid and weak and spineless. And the fact, I printed off a comic here, which I thought was kind of funny, because it's a comic, and it's The Timid Soul by H.T. Webster. This is Mr. Gleep, isn't it? This is Mr. Milk Toast that's, that's saying this. He says, this is Mr. Gleep, isn't it? My name is Milk Toast, Casper Milk Toast. My name isn't Bleep, it's Feep, F-E-E-P, Feep. Glad to know you, Mr. Quilt Roast. Silence. I'll tell you, Mr. Bill Post, the situation is like this. On the other hand, Mr. Silk Coat, we have a condition that is positively of course, I can see your point of view, Mr. Bilkroast, but at the same time, I hope you understand my position, Mr. Hilkmost. Excuse me. Goodbye, Mr. Feep. Goodbye, kilt lost. Come again. He says nothing. He corrects nothing. But the comic is basically saying this guy is a pushover, and he's going to allow someone to walk over him. And that is what America has looked as the definition of meek since at least the 1920s. So you can understand why as a non-Christian, a 22-year-old guy trying to get salty, trying to get tough, trying to get hard, trying to be a man's man, reading Blessed Are the Meek and saying, no, thank you, not interested. 
Is that making sense? Why I would feel that way and why most young men would feel that way? I got one brother shaking his head saying yes. Who has boys? Who wants to raise up to be men's men? So this morning we're going to look at what does meek mean? Does it mean weak? No. That's not what it means. The word meek actually in the Greek is preus, which means gentle, mild, humble. Meek means humble, being gentle, not thinking too highly of oneself, not proud or arrogant or boastful or brash. It might, look, uh, it might be easy to look at different people in our lives and give examples of someone that you see as humble, but I want to look at Scripture. And if you look at Scripture and you see people that are called meek or humble, you do not see them as pushovers or weak. And the first, I don't even have it in my notes, but the first picture that comes to mind for me is when Jesus is giving the story to these people and he's talking about Naaman the Syrian and the widow of Zarephath and, he, and, he, and they're saying, wow, this guy is amazing when he's reading out of Isaiah. But then he begins to give the story of the widow of Zarephath in Kings and then uh, Naaman in, in 2 Kings 5 and they get upset at him and he walks through this crowd because they drove him to the edge of a cliff seeking to throw him off the cliff. And Jesus... Our example walks through this crowd, and I just picture this guy, Jesus, walking through a a parting crowd of people saying, it's not my time. He wasn't shrinking, he wasn't running, he wasn't hiding, he walked through the middle of these people that doesn't sound like someone who is spineless to me. So in the book of Numbers, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. In the book of Numbers, chapter 12, I want to tell you that this this idea and this concept, concept is, I guess I would say I'm a little bit passionate about, because as most of you know, I coach a high school baseball team, and I'm surrounded by 25 to 30 young men every day who are being bombarded with the concept of effeminacy. And like I said, effeminacy is a wonderful thing for women who are created in the image of God. Male and female, He created them. In Numbers chapter 12, I have uh, three chapters here, chapter 12, 13, and 14 in Numbers, looking at Moses. But I want to think about who this Moses is. This Moses uh, was, went to Pharaoh, and he said, let, my, let God's people go. And God gave him the power, but he had some issues, and so uh, speaking issues, and he had some self-confidence issues, and so he sent Aaron along with him, because Moses said, I'm slow of speech, I stutter, and, and I'm not real intelligent. He says, I'll send Aaron with you, and so... He had some boldness, but he had some nervousness as well. So he's now leading Israel, and in Numbers chapter 12, it says Miriam and Aaron, Miriam and Aaron are Moses' brother and sister, sister and brother. Miriam is his sister, Aaron is his brother. They spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman who who he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. So Moses, according to the Bible, was the most gentle, humble, meek man on the face of the earth. This is the same Moses that I think beat a man to death. An Egyptian. The same Moses that 
went to Pharaoh and, and, and God used him to perform miracles. The same Moses that, that crosses the Red Sea, leads his people, the same Moses that's bold and strong and a leader of men and a leader of women and a leader of children, God says, is meek above every person who is on the face of the earth. Let's see what Moses does as an example of his humility, as an example of his meekness. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. We're going to have a powwow. The three of us are going to sit down, and I've got something to say to you. And he said, hear my words. If there is a, this is the Lord speaking, if there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision I speak with him in a dream, not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. That's an important little part right there. He beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Miriam, Aaron, why would you be okay talking trash about my servant Moses? To speak out against him. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against him, and he departed. Look at the next verse. When the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. God gave her leprosy just like that. When he departed, the cloud moved, and Miriam had leprosy. Leprosy is not eczema. Leprosy is something that would kill you, that would get you banished away from God's people. It had the possibility of ending your life. It had the, Definitely, you are now separate from the rest of the people. And he gave her leprosy. And Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, Oh, my Lord, do not punish us, because we have done foolishly and have sinned. He calls Aaron, uh, Moses his Lord. Let her not be as one dead, whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. And Moses said, she deserves what she got. She's talking bad against me. She's making fun of me. She's making my job hard. That's what she gets. You reap what you sow, Miriam. What version are you in? No. The response of Moses is this. He cries out to the Lord, Oh God, please heal her. Please! He cries out to God to heal Miriam, who is bad-mouthing him, and yet he is considered the most meek man on the face of the earth, who had the power to say, You know what? You get what you deserve. But that wasn't humility. That wasn't meekness. That wasn't gentleness. And that certainly was not spineless. And if you go through Numbers 13, it says the spies were sent to Canaan, and Moses continues on, and there's, the spies come back and they say, this is, a wonderful, uh, this is a wonderful place, and the fruit is huge, but so are the people, but we can do it. And Caleb and Joshua says, no, we can win this land. We can take this land. God is going to be with us. The Lord is going to protect us. The Lord is going to guide us. We can do this, and they're all excited. Then a few people grumble, and they get the rest of the people to grumble. And the congregation in Numbers 14 says, Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, 
Would that we died in the land of Egypt or that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. They're creating a coup against their leader who God used to bring them out. You would think Moses is now just continually getting tired of these people for the constant complaining. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we pass through to spy it out is exceedingly good land. So they begin to say, uh, it's good, we can take it, God's going to be with us. And verse 11, and the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me and how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I've done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them and I will make of you, listen to the words there, I will make you a, uh, of you a nation greater and mightier than they. Most of us, I would think, if we were in Moses' shoes, would say, I'm really getting tired of the Israelites complaining and second-guessing everything I'm doing. God, I'm with you. Wipe them out. You're going to make a greater nation of me. Moses is not hearing that he's going to get wiped down. What Moses is hearing is, of you, a nation greater than what you're dealing with these whiners is going to be made. So let me just take care of them. I think a lot of us would say, I could use a break from these people. Let's do it. But that's not what Moses said. The meekest man on the face of the earth replied, then the Egyptians will hear of it. For you brought up this people and all your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land they have heard from me. He's arguing on behalf of the very people that are talking about him and that are creating a coup against him. Then he says, it is because the Lord, that, that's what the Egyptians will say, it is because the Lord is not able to bring this people into the land. And now please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children for the third and the fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Moses is saying, forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they're doing. See what I did there? What's physical is spiritual. We see it in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. Forgive them for their iniquities. Forgive them for their sin. He had every right to get them wiped off the face of the earth, and he didn't. The meekest man on the face of the earth who had power from God, who had some, was probably a pretty stout guy, I can picture him, said, Forgive them. Don't wipe them out. In 2 Chronicles, we see Solomon, another example of humility. In 2 Chronicles chapter 1, I like Solomon uh, because of his writings 
in Ecclesiastes and what he had said in Ecclesiastes about he had, he had discovered and searched out everything to make him happy, and he realized that fearing God and keep his commandments is the whole duty of man. I've tried everything, and none of it filled that, you know, that old cliche, there's a, there's a, a God side, a, a hole in everyone's heart, it's God's size that only God can fill, or something along those lines. Solomon tried everything. And so Solomon, uh, in 2 Chronicles chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Solomon, the son of David, established himself in his kingdom, and the Lord his God was with him and made him exceedingly great. So Solomon was made exceedingly great by who? By God. God made him exceedingly great. Solomon spoke to all Israel, to the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, to the judges and to all the leaders in all Israel, the heads of fathers, and Solomon and all the assembly with him went to the high place that was at Gibeon for the tent of meeting of God, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, had made in the wilderness, was there. And in, in verse 6, And Solomon went up there to the bronze altar before the Lord, which was at the tent of meeting, and offered a thousand burnt offerings on it. So Solomon offers a thousand burnt offerings to the Lord. Solomon's got pretty deep pockets. Solomon's already pretty wealthy. Now it does say that the Lord his God was with him and made him exceedingly great. So it's, it would be still easy for Solomon to look at himself and say, look how great I've become. We talk about it in our Bible study a lot. Look how great I've become. The Bible's very clear that he became exceedingly great because of what the Lord had done through him. The Lord had made him exceedingly great. But still, in that night, God appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask what I shall give you. Now, who here has seen, what's that movie with the, the, the uh, Aladdin? The little lamp, the little genie lamp, and, uh, and Aladdin comes out, and he says, what do you want to be? And he gives him the three wishes or whatever. So this is, this, is, uh, this is like Aladdin times a gazillion. So God says to Solomon, what do you want? You want... 10 million acres in the middle of Yellowstone? Do you want all of Yellowstone? Do you want the U.S.? I'll just plant you right in the middle of it in the, in the Rocky Mountains, and you can have that. What do you want, Brian? Do you want, do you want all of Costa Rica or just the little southeast corner? I mean, what is it that you want? Do you want money? Do you want fame? Do you want power? Do you want me to kill your enemies? Do you want me to make you live forever? You can have anything you want. And Solomon said... Give me now wisdom and knowledge to go out and come in before this people, for who can govern this people of yours which is so great? We have an example of Solomon who God has given wisdom. At this point, God replied, because this was in your heart and you have not asked for possessions, wealth, honor, or the life of those who hate you, and because uh, and have not even asked for long life, but have asked for wisdom and knowledge for yourself that you may govern my people over whom I have made you king. Wisdom and knowledge are granted to you. I will also give you riches, possessions, and honor such as none of the kings who, had, who were before you and none after you shall have the like. So as I see this, there is no one in the history of mankind that has been, even with inflation and even with net values going through the roof, as wealthy, as rich, as Solomon. And I believe studies have been done by Harvard mathematicians that have looked at, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at you because maybe you've read this before, but I've read that people have studied the life of Solomon and his possessions, and they looked at what something was valued back then, and they had the number of land and the cattle and all that, that he had more wealth than Bezos and, and, and what, what's the electric car guy's name? 
Elon Musk just bought Twitter, you know. Yeah, I, I, it was on the tip of my tongue. I, I, I just couldn't say it. Uh, what are you teaching that kid, Dan? No, good. He bought Twitter and he's making it open again so we can have at least fair news. Was that political? No. There's a story uh, told of two generals in the Civil War. And during the close of the Civil War, there was uh, General Sherman, and he was in his last campaign in the South. And certain leadership changes were made at the, the higher-up army. And General Howard was placed at the head of the Special Division. And when the war was closed, there was a scheduled grand review of the army in Washington. And the night before the review, General Sherman approached General Howard, and he said, excuse me, the political friends of who you succeeded, uh, they're determined that that he, your successor, shall ride at the head of the Corps, and I need you to help me out with this. And General Howard replied, this is my command. I mean, I, I'm entitled to, to the role, I'm entitled to the role of being at the head of this, and of this head. And General Sherman said, well, of course you are. You, you know, you led these men through Georgia and through the Carolinas. And uh, Howard, you know, the thing is, you're a Christian, and I'm going to need help with this, and because you're a Christian, you can stand the disappointment. And General Howard said, well, if you put it on that ground, there is but one answer, let him ride at the head of the Corps. And General Sherman said, yes, let him have the honor, but you will report to me at 9 o'clock and will ride by my side at the head of the entire army. General Howard protested, but his commander's orders were positive. So the following day, in the grand review, he had a place of honor at the head of the whole army. When I read that story about someone who was a Christian who had uh, shown humility in a certain situation, I was reminded of the parable of the wedding feast in Luke chapter 14. Here's why homilies are harder, Rick, because I get about 40 minutes to make my point. You guys have five. It's harder to say a little bit or a lot in a little bit of time. In Luke 14, there's the passage, verses 7 through 11, uh, which is the parable of the wedding banquet. And he told a parable, uh, verse 7, now he told a parable of those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. So this kind of goes back to Matthew 23, where Jesus is doing the seven woes of the Pharisees, and woe to you Pharisees, and you... You want the, the, the places of honor at the banquets and you wear your phylacteries wide and your tassels long and you love to be seated in places of honor at the banquets. So Jesus is referring to this as well when he says, you are invited by someone to a wedding feast. Do not sit down in the place of honor, but lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person and then you will reign, or I'm sorry, then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. I'm hoping my goal is we're starting to get some concept of what blessed are the meek. It is not weak. It is not spineless. It is not getting pushed around and pushed over. That's not the definition that we see in Matthew chapter 5. It's, a, it's an understanding of who we are. It's an understanding of who we serve. 
It's an understanding of, of where we are in the eyes of God. That's what meek is. That is where humility comes from. It is not lack of confidence. It's a lack of arrogance. And there is a major difference between the two. If you fast forward four chapters to Luke chapter 18, you're going to see a very clear picture of meekness versus arrogance or uh, humility versus arrogance. And in Luke chapter 18, we have the Pharisee and the tax collector. And Jesus told this parable and he says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Can you just picture this Pharisee walking up and saying, thank God I'm not like that guy. I do all the right things. I, 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 I give a tenth of everything I have. I don't commit adultery. I'm not an extortioner. I'm not unjust. He's, he's looking at himself as I'm following the law. I am, I am worthy. I am worthy to be here. And then it says the next person, the tax collector standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes in heaven but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful, I am a sinner. He recognized who he was standing in front of. It wasn't, look at me, I'm good, or at least I'm not as bad as him. It is, God, have mercy on me because I am basing my value on who you are. I am basing my goodness on who you are. That's the difference between the two people. And then Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, talking about the tax collector who says, have mercy on me, a sinner. He went down justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Is that making sense? The difference between the, 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 the idea of, of humility and weakness? Because I don't want my boys to read Matthew 5, 5 and say, oh, that means I'm going to be soft. Because that's not what it's saying. I'm going to be weak. I'm going to be spineless. I'm going to be milk toast. That's not who Jesus is. That's not who we follow. And I don't want my daughter looking for a man when she decides I want to get married to look for a man that's weak. I want her to find a strong, God-fearing, God-fearing and no-fearing else man that can walk with his shoulders back, his head high. That's who I want my daughter to bring home and say, Daddy, I'm in love. Because if he's not that way, he's going to have a really rough time with her brothers. He's not going to cut it. He says, for they shall inherit the earth. They shall inherit the earth. That word inherit means an heir, an inheritor. It's the same as a child who receives from his earthly parents upon their passing what once belonged to the father and mother now belongs to the son or daughter. There's, there's several different commentaries out there uh, about what that means. Um, 
I'm going to read one of them. There is a sense in which all of the teachings of Jesus Christ, indeed the teaching of the whole of Scripture, have an undeniable dimension of eschatology. Eschatology comes from a combination of Greek words that means the study of the last things or the study of the last times. Uh, the study of the last times include what the Bible teaches about the end of our days, what happens when we die, and the time between our death and the second coming of Jesus, and the final judgment and culmination of the kingdom of God in a new heaven and a new earth. So when Jesus says that the meek inherit the earth, he is affirming that salvation is a holistic term. We are saved in this life. We are saved at the moment of our death. We are saved as we come before God. We are saved at the final judgment, and we are saved when we come to reign with Jesus in the new heaven and new earth. He goes on to say, I believe that there is even more. We are saved in our personhood, our very humanity. To inherit the earth for me right now means to be given strength to face the disease that has afflicted me. To inherit the earth is to know the fullness of love and companionship with my wife and family. To inherit the earth is to know friendship based on love and respect rather than what one can do for me. To inherit the earth is to be at peace with God. That is the belief of this particular writer. As you guys know, I, I, I read this, uh, this William Barclay commentary. I think he is clever. I think he, um, I think he speaks in a way that's a little bit more um, layman, which is why I think probably I understand it better. It's not too far over my head. But when he has a commentary on blessed are the meek, and then he goes on to say, shall inherit the earth. I'm going to not read much of it, but I'm going to read you what his take on it is, which I actually tend to agree with. Aristotle defines meekness and the mean, uh, and the mean uh, I'm sorry, let me start over. Aristotle defines meekness, preotis, as the mean, the middle between orgolotis, which means aggressive anger, and eorgesia, which means excessive angerlessness. Preotis meekness, as Aristotle saw it, is the happy medium between too much and too little anger. And so the first possible translation of this beatitude is, blessed is the man who is always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. He continues. But the word pros had a second standard Greek usage. It is the regular word for an animal which has been domesticated, which has been trained to obey the word of command, which has learned to answer to the reins. It is the word for an animal which has learned to accept control. So the second parable, or the second possible translation of this beatitude, blessed are the meek, is blessed is the man who has every instinct, every impulse, every passion under control. Blessed is the man who is entirely self-controlled. Then he continues, Praetus describes the humility, the acceptance of the necessity to learn and of the necessity to be forgiven. It describes man's only possible attitude toward God. So the third possible translation of this beatitude is blessed is the man who has the humility to know his own ignorance, his own weakness, and his own need. And then he takes all three of those, and he says, it is clear that this word pros means far more than the English word meek means now. It is in fact clear that there is no one English word which will translate it, although perhaps the word gentle comes nearest to it. The full translation of the third beatitude must read, don't miss it, lest are the meek. They shall inherit the earth. Oh, the bliss of the man who is always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time, who has every instinct and impulse and passion under control because he himself is God-controlled, who has the humility to realize his own ignorance and his own weakness 
For such a man is a king among men. Such a man is a king among men. I was at a barbecue last night. Uh, a couple hours, Brenda and I went there, and these are cousins, boyfriends, sister-in-law's birthday. So we went to the barbecue and had some good smoked ribs, and it was good. It's chilly. It's a good meal. Didn't have any vegetables, but Brenda reminded me I needed to eat vegetables today. So I'll eat vegetables today. I didn't have them last night. And I was visiting with my wife's cousin's boyfriend, who is an agnostic. And an agnostic is a person who believes that nothing is known or can be known about the existence or the nature of God, um, or anything beyond material phenomena. Uh, a person either claims neither to have a faith or a disbelief in God. That's the definition of agnostic. And as we were discussing, he said, it's hard for me to believe in a supreme being that seems so insecure that would require people worship him. And I, I, I just took a minute to, to take a deep breath and, and recognize that there's a reason why he believes that way. I'm not going to um, condemn him to hell. That's not my job. In fact, I told him at one point, I don't have a gavel. God didn't give me one, and I don't want it. Uh, but I will tell you three things when I visited with him. It was that we, I told him this, that we can't put God on a human level. And, and that's what we do as humans. We put God on this human level and think that our weaknesses, be it in this case insecurity, that our weaknesses are somehow parallel to how God is. And I said, I don't believe that God even has one one trillionth of a percent of insecurity in his character. I see none of that in Scripture as I read. And the second point I made was that we have no right to question God. We think because we sing the song, which I believe he says we are all brothers, which Jesus quotes in the Gospels, but we have to understand that we have no right to question God why he does what he does. We can say, God, I don't understand. What is your will? I, I mean, why is your will doing this or whatever? But we, I don't believe we have the right as human, as creation, to say the cup to say to the potter, why did you make me like this? And the third thing that I told him is that, and to me this is the easiest to understand and to explain to people, God's ways are for our own good. It's, it's not like he is this parent that's not giving good direction. He is a good parent teaching us and training us in obedience so that we may thrive and be happy and successful in life. God is not an evil God. He is a good God that says, trust me, I know what I'm doing. Just listen to me. Does that make sense? Just listen to me. That's what God is telling us throughout scriptures. Don't die, don't die, don't die. And I wish I had it in my mind to know this proverb last night, but in Proverbs 22, verse 4, it says, The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. Listen to that promise. The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. So when Jesus says, blessed are the meek, 
Blessed are the gentle. Blessed are the humble. What he's saying is, don't think too highly of yourself. Recognize, recognize that what you have comes from me. I mean, the, the passage in Romans, I'll finish with this passage in Romans chapter 12. In verse 3, Paul is writing to the church at Rome, and I'm looking forward to getting to this in our men's study as well. But he says, For by the grace given to me, so Paul automatically starts out this part of the chapter by saying, the unmerited favor that was given to me, I'm going to say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but think with sober judgment according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So when some kid is bragging that he's faster than you or stronger than you or taller than you, you go, what did you do? You didn't earn that. God just gave that to you. And so don't think too highly of yourself that you're great because you're faster. God just gave you those fast switch muscles and he didn't give them to me, but that's okay. I have a different role if you continue on. For as in one body we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So don't think too highly of yourself. Because when we recognize that the grace given us, when we recognize that the, the, the rewards, the blessing, the patience, the love, the faith that God gives us is from God. And if I had to summarize this whole message, I would say the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. God rewards those. He even says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He is, he is seeking to reward us based on our humility. And our humility is, do we recognize Him? And the beautiful thing about this whole Sermon on the Mount is the progression that we've seen so far, which that was the other nugget that I took from Steve's sermon. I didn't realize, many times I read this, there's a progression in the Sermon on the Mount. You have to become totally bankrupt before blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You can't have uh, meekness and humility and thirst and hunger for righteousness, which is next week now. I thought it was going to be this week, but it's next week. But you can't have that until you are so bankrupt morally and spiritually, you recognize that it's God. God, God, God. That's, that's where we are. That's what we need. And the second one, until you have a mourning that is a godly sorrow, which is a repentance, the beginning of repentance. And then we can look at it going, oh, now I can be humble. I can recognize that I'm empty. I repent of that. I mourn of that. Now I can kneel before the throne. And now I can say, Father, I, I get it. I can't do it on my own. I have to have you. I have to have you helping me. Because if I don't have you helping me, Am I really, have I mourned? Have I realized my own bankruptcy? And then if you look at the next week, then there's this all of a sudden, oh, now I'm hungry. I'm hungry for knowledge. I'm hungry for righteousness. I can go up now. I can go towards the king now. I won't preach next week's sermon. 
God bless you guys. I hope it made sense. Um, visitors here, I'm glad you made it. Brother, do we have a closing song? Okay, I'll let you.